Hey there, we're the West Slap Pirates and welcome to the show. We're here to share our thoughts on Northwestern athletics and college sports with thoughts and analysis from the visceral to the statistical. We run our tailgate with the red pirate flag flying high above as we give no quarter, especially the fourth. I'm Sam Walter. I'm John Lacombe. And I'm Eric Skoskowspo. Oh well guys, uh, coming off a wildly successful uh, outing at Welsh Ryan Arena last week, um, all three of us in attendance as the women take down Michigan. Uh want to talk about that. We've got some uh, news and notes uh, from elsewhere in, in the women's team. we got some men's hoops to talk about. we got some Super Bowl to talk about. we got some breaking news, or I guess it's not really breaking now. It uh, happened a little bit earlier this afternoon uh, coming out of East Lansing. But uh, first, let's, let's talk about this game. Let's, uh, you know, big shout out to, to Kat, to Emily, to everyone who uh, kind of led the charge on, on putting this together. It was great to see uh, so many people out at the game. Um, thanks to everyone who showed up. Uh, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was fantastic. It was a great experience. Again, this was Sam, you and I's second trip back to the stadium this year. And women's basketball really hits kind of a sweet spot because um, the crowds are healthy but at the same time, they nowhere near approach men's crowds. So it's, you know, it, it neither feels like there aren't enough people, although with the woman, you always feel like there aren't enough people. But it feels like there's a great atmosphere. And at the same time, you really have room to move around and do what you want to do. And there's not too big of a line at the concession stand. So that combined with just how great that facility is, was an awesome time. In terms of the game, it's funny, I think... It shows you where we are as fans with this team right now that we were kind of up and then Michigan pulled back and then we briefly lost the lead uh, in the second half, second half of the game, I think in the third quarter. And as time went on in the third quarter, we were kind of like, uh, Michigan's playing, you know, kind of strong. Like, what's going on? Why aren't we putting them away? Which is funny because... I think because we're just all so used to this team being so good, Northwestern, we maybe weren't giving Michigan quite enough credit. And then that team went out and beat Iowa in their next game. So I think Michigan is actually playing really good basketball right now. And the fact that the team, you know, probably got maybe a little tougher game than they were expecting and still fought and, and clawed and pulled away late speaks to this team can, can win going away and they can win tight games as well. Well, and this was really important from a stylistic standpoint, too, because Michigan brought a very physical game. Um, and I think that was on purpose, right? Like the Cats don't have a deep bench. They only run they only run eight players out there generally. And it, it's it's really only seven with with Bertie Galernick just only coming in in, in the, the waning moments of waning minutes of games. Although her yeah, her layup, her scoop layup was absolutely Gorgeous. Yeah, she had a, she had a nice little field goal late in the game. Um, but I think Michigan, I think their game plan was to uh, put bodies on Northwestern and uh, st- stress us physically um, to try and get into uh, Abby Wolf's head. They, they they were able to do that in some ways. Um, the other thing that was key for them is they did not allow Northwestern to really really um, dominate from a steals and turnovers point of view i mean early in the game like they were just like they were handing over everything passing to northwestern and they were letting burton do whatever she wanted but um they knuckled down in in that middle section in that third quarter especially and held their own and and northwestern 
stopped getting that advantage of possessions, etc. And then, and then Lindsay came and just <laughs> said, "Guys, this has been fun, but I'm going to take over and put this away." And that was the the last 20 minutes of this game were so much fun to watch because it was just Pulliam going to work. Yeah, I mean, she did not see a shot she wouldn't take. I mean, <laughs> she what three different shots from behind the backboard, like on the baseline, underneath the backboard. One went off the side, one went in, and she got fouled on one. So, you know, three shots from behind the backboard. She ends up with four points. But you you, you say that she didn't see a shot that she didn't like. She still shot, shot better than 50%. Like, she yeah, was no, on I mean, fire. Exactly. It, like, she, shooter's going to shoot. I mean, she just, you know, she was just firing. And they were going in. It was amazing. You could, and her stroke was on tonight. You saw that at the free throw line, too. I mean, this is, we talked last week about the fact that, you know, Burton and Pulliam tend to do so much damage combined from the free throw line in a game, and that they had been a little off in their prior game, and then really locked it down in this one. Pulliam was 10 for 11 from the line. Like Sam was saying, I mean, we had a pretty good angle on two shots that, that Pulliam took, where we were like, you're looking at the backboard right now. <laughs> like, and, but yeah, she doesn't, she, she's an unconscious shooter. And I mean, that's volume shooter. And, and again, we've seen times earlier in the year where, you know, like if she's a little bit off that, that can be a problem. It was a bigger problem last year. We talked about that when there was less of a uniform contribution. I think one of the real differences than that. And, and again, we've talked about this, but one thing that was really apparent, and this goes to something that Scuzz sort of was getting at regarding Michigan, is Michigan wanted to be physical. They also showed us a lot of zone, and that goes with the physicality and the size that Michigan had out on the floor, and it was problematic. Um, again, Pulliam got on fire down the stretch and then was able to kind of carve it up. What's interesting, though, is I think when teams throw us a zone— one of the first places Northwestern looks is to Abby Shy because she is the best pure long-range shooter on the team in terms of just accuracy. Now, in terms of ability to get, you know, get her own shot, that's Pulliam, obviously. But Shy is a deadly shooter. There's a reason she was honored for making the 1,000-point club right before the start of this game. She has drained a load of threes in four years, and it was clear especially because she started really hot from behind the arc, that when Michigan went into that zone, our goal was to try to get her looks. And it wasn't that she was missing shots. It was that when Michigan went on their run and was able to tighten the game up, you could see we were trying and failing to get the ball around to her and having difficulty you know, working through the shot clock. And it's just interesting from, from a strategic standpoint because Michigan was clearly thinking, all right, We've got to try to force them behind the arc and then try to shut down their long-range shooters, and hopefully that's going to help shut Pulliam down. And it sort of worked, and then it didn't work. And we talked about that last week uh, when we were talking about Maryland and the way Maryland, in their own way, really said, all right, we're going to put this on Pulliam. We're going to try to take everything else away, and we're going to see what she, what she can do. And we talked about it then. Look, that might work. Pulliam is not afraid, and if you think you might catch her on an off night, she's going to put up a volume of shots. You also might look like an idiot, because like in the Michigan game, Pulliam just puts up 32, and honestly, 
could have been fouled a few more times in the closing minutes and added even more points onto that. I mean, she, like 30. She, yeah. twe- she tweeted after afterwards, uh, 24 plus eight um, equals 32, alluding to Kobe Bryant's two numbers and, and kind of um, paid some homage to, you know, uh, uh, you know, his presence, um, you know, having passed earlier in the week. So, you know, she she might have passed up those additional looks uh, if she was thinking about that in the moment. But um, I think what what was just so impressive to me was the like you could feel it when she decided to take over the game, and and there were a variety of things. Right, there was her setting up from from long. There there's this um, kind of back back screen that they set for her so she can come off of uh, and, and hit a little jumper near the elbow. Um, they just they have so many plays set up for her and. Even when Michigan knows it's coming, they can't they can't stop it. And so, like your your point, John, about like if she's if she's on, like you're toast. My absolute favorite play, and I just I briefly want to talk about this. Um, the cats got the cats committed a foul uh, on on the other end where Michigan was doing a lot of damage inside. Right, they were trying to use their sides. They frustrated and flustered Wolf. She was out of the game, I think, with foul trouble, and they were just crashing hard uh, down low in the paint and Northwestern picked up a foul. And I don't think it was on Lindsay, but she was obviously really frustrated and she walked all the way down the court and just, and stood in the corner, um, on Northwestern's end. And then Northwestern brought the ball down and like immediately passed to her. And she immediately drained it from almost that exact spot. And it just like, she exerted her will on the game. And it was just, it was so much fun to watch that in person. And I like, we're probably going to say this about five times in the next three minutes, but go watch this team play in person. They are awesome. Lindsay is a spectacular talent. Um, it is so enjoyable. And, and the, like, it was especially fun, right? Cause we, we had a gathering of probably 15, well, more than 15 people in the end as, as other folks trickled in that, that we know. And it was so much easier to like catch up and, and, uh, get together and, you know, talk up in the concourses, et cetera, because there is space to move around. Um, but it, but it's it, it's still a lively atmosphere, and, and the product on the court was, was spectacular. Yeah, it was it was so much fun. And, you know, we're, we, you know, we're talking about going to games, and, um, you know, really interesting uh, what kind of came out today is the, uh, the tournament selection committee released uh, kind of an early – early look at the the potential seedings and right now Northwestern sitting as a four seed which means they'd be hosting first and second round games at Welsh Shrine Arena and can you guys just imagine how I mean the atmosphere in there for NCAA tournament games would be amazing I mean just it'd be it'd be awesome I think back to softball last spring when softball hosted a regional, how awesome that was. I mean, just to have Evanston be a destination for tournament play in anything, let alone that stadium, you're right, would be absolutely fantastic. I was really – so the poll, I think either the, – the AP poll either came out earlier that day or the day before the committee released their the lineup that Sam was talking about. One of the big takeaways is the committee values the entire Big Ten much more highly than the AP does right now. Um, they have the, the committee has Maryland as a two seed right now. That is a team Sam and I watched get flattened in Evanston. <laughs> now, granted, that's one of their only losses, and they got their revenge at home against Northwestern. But you're talking about a team with a worse overall record than Northwestern that Northwestern has split with 
And the committee has them as a two seed. The AP has them 13th, which is eight spots above where Northwestern is right now. And again, I texted you guys. The the poll is starting to tick me off, something fierce. We're ranked, I think, three spots behind Indiana, who has a worse conference record, a worse overall record, and who we beat at their house. And they're ranked three spots above us. So um, they, but with that said, you've got four teams right now that the committee has as I think a, a two seed, two four seeds, Northwestern and Iowa, who for my money are the two best teams in the conference. And then I think Indiana as a five seed. But still, I mean, you're you're talking, it speaks really well of the Big Ten. But again, like Sam said, a chance to actually host a regional would just be incredible. And then on uh, Super Bowl Sunday, they head out to Penn State. Um, first half, kind of back and forth. You know, you go into halftime, uh, you know, with a, a slight lead. Um no, they were down. No, they were down, I, I'm down sorry. One yeah, the, yeah the down down a point at the halftime, and then come out in the third quarter and put up 29 in the third and only give up seven, and the game the, was over. The third quarter was back and forth too. Like they grabbed Penn State and slammed them back and forth <laughs> onto the court. Um, yeah, there again. It's like yes, were they a little bit asleep in the first half of that game? Sure, but. That's yet another lower tier Big Ten team that Northwestern has just erased this year. There were I like I think I'm I'm just parsing the the play by play right now. I, roughly five turnovers in the in the third quarter that Northwestern forced, and then just a lot of missed shots. I mean, they're like they again. Very similar to the Michigan game, they came out and, and and more as a team on the defensive end, but just like asserted their will and simultaneously, Pulliam and Burton really started scoring in the second half. And uh, yeah, just just a, a nice a nice little statement there. The the Cats' schedule from here on out is um, quite tasty. I think we talked about it last time. Uh, there's you know a game at Michigan, which is looking a lot more daunting now. But at home, home versus Nebraska, home Rutgers. Those are both, you know, challenges for sure. But um, the 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 plausibility of them winning the next seven games to to run out the season here is uh, quite high. It's just crazy. They're you know, on the tenth, they're hosting Michigan State, a team they beat by twenty eight on the road for win number twenty to go to twenty and three, which is just incredible. I mean, for men's or women's hoops. As long as we've been doing this pod, 20 wins, you know, historically has been a benchmark. Uh, a 20-win season is something that we tend to get pretty excited about, and they're looking to go 20-3 and three here. So, yeah, it's incredible. And, you know, probably seven definitely gets it, but six out of seven, and uh, I would imagine even six out of seven and at least one or two wins in the tournament, and we'll be hosting that regional, just like Sam said. Yeah, and like they're off this week. I mean, this is this is a uh, bye week for them. Um, you know, like I said, played on Sunday. Don't play again until next Monday. So you know, chance to rest up a little bit, get get your legs back down for the stretch. Uh, you said home against Michigan State, at Michigan, home against Nebraska and Rutgers, at Wisconsin, at Ohio State, and then Senior Day on Leap Day against Illinois. So um, go see this team, people. Yeah, absolutely. they are awesome. 
you know, Monday night it's an 8 p.m. Uh, tip, so a little bit later it gives you a chance to get home, uh, get the kids fed, off to bed, and then head up to up to the game. Uh, Sunday afternoon, February 16th against Nebraska, that is going to be a great opportunity uh, to get out and, and see these, these ladies. And they're just absolutely fantastic. Go see them. In, in interest of a sad transition, the day after <laughs> I think we watched that game, I was watching the men play on television. And I mean, it's like, we're not idiots. Like we all know, okay, like men's sports draw way more. But in this season, looking at Welsh Ryan on TV and how packed the lower bowl was and just thinking all these people came to watch a far lower quality basketball. Um, and uh, so, I mean, just to Scuzz's point, it's like the, the best team is the, is the ladies. Go and see them play. Go watch a team playing at the highest possible level right now. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned uh, the the game the next or uh, the game the next night, and then of course you've got the uh, the Purdue. Well, that was the Purdue game, right? Yep. I think it was the Purdue game. Yeah, yeah. That's, that, that's the that's the collapse. Yeah, yeah, uh, and and you know you've got that game against Purdue, which uh, you know they had. They really had. I mean, they had that game in hand and then gave up the last 11 points of the game to lose by three. This and is, this is what, like the fourth or fifth time it's happened this season now? Yeah. I mean, like how many, how many times, how many games have they lost by less than like three or fewer points? It's, well, well, it's, well, I mean, games that they had, they, they, oh, they essentially had one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Indiana for sure. Um, uh-huh. there's, there's another one I'm forgetting. Um, uh, sorry. Illinois, Illinois, Illinois. Yes. Yes. Uh, um, uh, Indiana, uh, Minnesota kind of got away from them late. They had, they had yeah. that big lead, uh, early against Maryland. I mean, that's a little bit of a different story, right? Cause Maryland's just, um, kind of another well, level. That one but... didn't get out of hand until very late. I mean, that was close up until the very end. Yep. Yep. Um, but they didn't have like a like a lead at the end that you would have expected them to hold on to and win. Right? right? No, that that's true. Um, uh, the so it's 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 mind numbing. Um, like and we've talked about the struggles of this team in terms of the personnel and the injuries and everything else, and they're you know they're doing it with duct tape and dental floss and a lacrosse player. Um, but it's I I mean at at this stage, like we can only hear Coach Collins say in the post game presser that you know. We're start we're we're starting three freshmen and two sophomores or, or whatever it is that he says it's 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 been a it's become a constant din you know this year um, from him and in a vacuum it's one thing but you tack on last year and the year before and some of the just weird crazy personnel decisions that still don't make any sense i.e. Isaiah Bowser and like it's um, Bowser Isaiah Brown uh, Isaiah Brown oh my goodness uh, sorry f- f- football brain. Um, but the point, like, like to me, there's just such a clear game coaching issue and it's now becoming a player development issue. And it's like, I'm far more comfortable asking questions about like, should we continue the Chris Collins era than I was, uh, uh, regarding the Bill Carmody era when that, when that was coming to a close. So 
you know, on one hand, you want to, I don't know, well, I say you, but I few people do, subscribe to what Collins is saying, right, about the team being young and everything. And so here's, on one hand... He, he's not wrong, but... Well, right. So, like, on one hand, this game, which, again, with all respect to everything you said, everything is true. The season-long narrative about this team giving up leads, regardless of the reasoning behind it, is true. This game was on a totally different level. This is one of the worst collapses you'll ever see. Um, and the three turnovers down the stretch that led to it were a Boo Booey turnover, a uh, Pat Spencer turnover, and a Ryan Young turnover. So you can look at all those and you can be like, those are three turnovers uh, caused by guys who are all in their first year of college basketball. So on one hand, you've got that. On, but... the, other, on the other hand, you have Pete Nance. And... Well, before you even get there, the the there were six possessions down the stretch that the Cats failed to score on. Right. Three turnovers and three settling for three-point shots. Right. And, and like, the, the Bowie and Spencer turnovers were not, like, as they drove the lane to score on a layup, right? Like, right. like there's a serious end-of-game coaching issue. Right. Well, there's that. And I, I just mean, like, in terms of a general development perspective, right – one, we've talked about this before. Basketball is not like football, okay? Like, it seems obvious to point this out. The very best teams in college basketball tend to, like, make a lot of hay with guys who are freshmen. Yep. And then those guys leave after, like, that's not the standard for everything. And, yes, you do have teams built with veteran teams, and Northwestern made the tournament with a team that had a lot of, you know, solid junior, senior contributors. Okay, but... Overall, basketball is a sport where top guys come in and are good right away. And you can look at a guy like Miller Cop and you can say, well, Miller Cop in a right situation could be getting more done. But overall, I mean, just like a guy like Nance, who is more lost out there than he has been at any point. I mean, this is a guy who, again, does Purdue have a couple of quality bigs? Yes. But this is a team that's 12 and 10 overall and 5 and 6 in the Big Ten. This is not a great Purdue basketball team. They're just a mediocre Big Ten team. And he was just completely flummoxed and has been. And so on the flip side, you're talking this is on paper the biggest basketball recruit Northwestern's ever had. And he looks in a worse place right now than he does when he first put on Northwestern uniform. So you look at that and you say, okay, so yes, there are these end of game errors. There's all these problems that Scuzz talked about, but at the same time, like, I don't know what the evidence is that like there's development that's going to happen after this, that's going to erase these things. Um, so yeah, like we said, this team is broken. Um, and, and it does have like horrible depth issues and it does have talent and certainly a guy like cop, but there's not that synthesis. And there is that thing at the end of the game where it's like, okay, if if this isn't working, like, what's going on? And early on in this game, especially, I think, because Cop was so hot from behind the arc, um, we were just shooting the lights out. And then the minute the three stopped falling, that was it. And, and like, things immediately turned into a mess. And it's like, you're you're not seeing synthesis. You're not seeing things coming together. And you're not seeing evidence that there's going to be some sort of magic continued development here that is going to unlock this for these guys. So, I mean, if you want to be glass half full, you could be like, yeah, they played this team really close. But you add all these up, and the farther these games go on, the more a guy like Matt Painter is figuring out a way to unlock this thing. 
and, and get back into the game and undo whatever it is that we've had working. And, you know, if it's like you end up with this feeling that no lead is safe with this team. So the the question, and, and we have to ask, is, you know, how warm is Collins the seat getting? I mean, it, it, I, I don't expect him to get fired this year, maybe not even next, but, you know, is, is there, is there starting to be a little bit of concern about, I mean, if he were how, any how much, other major, how much, yeah, how much does going to the tournament for the first time get you? I mean, how many years does that give you? I think it buys you a handful, but if there's no measurable progress and, and if frankly, the, the, the team, appears to be going in the wrong direction. Like I, I I, honestly getting to the tournament in some ways resets the landscape for Northwestern basketball, not in the sense that, Oh, the bar is higher now and that sort of thing. But from, from a destination type place, like you get that done and you use it to raise a bunch of funds to revamp your stadium and fix your facilities. Well, now the two biggest problems with Northwestern basketball historically don't exist anymore. All of a sudden, your potential to re- to to get other young and up and coming coaches is is a lot greater, in my opinion. Um, so, like, if if this was you know year whatever of the Carmody era, right? It's it, we were always having the conversation of oh my god who can we get and it, like is it going to be any better if if he fails won't it look like it's just a complete disaster of a of a everything and then nobody's going to come it's going to be back to the dark ages etc. But having gotten that tournament win or that well yeah the the tournament the win, appearance yeah, sure. and the win and some of the the players that have come to Northwestern Vic Law getting you know uh, whatever he's getting in the NBA right now like. If 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 you're in the Northwestern, if you're if you're Jim Phillips, you have to be making a potential list because and 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 you've got to be having some tough conversations with the, with the coaching staff about like like we we've got to be better and how are we going to get there because I I I think there are options for Northwestern out there in ways that there haven't been in the past and and fix fix I mean fixing the facilities like I, like people we all really, really, really underrate the impact of those facilities on the players and the coaches themselves. Um, It's not just about recruiting. It's about the day-to-day life that you live in those facilities and how much time you spend there. And if it's old and musty and crappy, like that sucks. That's a, that's a, that's a shitty work environment. You don't want that. Um, so like Northwestern is just on a totally different plane than we were eight years ago or however long it was when, when, when the Carmody era finally ended. So I like, I think his seat has to be warm. Well, I mean, first of all, you're absolutely right about everything you just said, but it was in a way better place when Carmody, when Collins took over for Carmody. Yeah. Then it was when Carmody took over for Kevin O'Neill by like a factor of 10. Oh yeah. Um, and that we're, matters. We're, we're a lot closer to O'Neill right now than we are to Carmody, it feels like. And, and that matters because, just so you all know, I crunched the numbers so that you don't have to. <laughs> oh. Um, oh. If we lose our next eight games, 
which I, you know, to say it's out of the realm of possibility, I'd say if you were betting, you'd bet against us losing our next eight games. Is it possible? You bet your butt it's possible. If we lose our next eight, Chris Collins has a worse career coaching percentage than Bill Carmody does. With everything that Scuzz just listed, plus the benefit of eternity appearance, which again, he built that team, so that's good, that's him, but with a way better head start at the beginning and all these facilities and everything and Vic Law in the, in the NBA and et cetera. Um, and if, if we lose eight in a row and just, you know, our next four, for example, we go on the road to play the greatest Rutgers team in 40 years next game. Um, then a bad Michigan team, which good, that's at home. Maybe we can pull that off. Then on the road against two ranked teams and then two team and then two games after that against two teams that have already beaten us. And then suddenly we'd be knocking right up against it. So um, I hate to be total nihilist, but that's where we are right now. And with with all of these advantages and with everything, um, if that happens, and if we finish on this horrific slide down the stretch here, Chris Collins is going to have a worse career winning percentage than Bill Carmody. Well, before we just get too uh, down and depressed, I do want to move on. Big news coming out of East Lansing today, uh, as Mark, Mark D'Antonio, yeah, Mark D'Antonio steps down. It does it happen to be the day after Michigan State was hit with a big lawsuit, uh, out alleging some major recruiting violations? Sure. Does that have anything to do with it? Who's to say? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, this feels very Pete uh, Carolian, if I, if I can, can coin a term. Um, in that, uh, at at the same time, I think we even we even bandied this around uh, in maybe in our preseason preview, like like how like does D'Antonio's seat get warm? Like how long is he going to stay there? He just obviously he's he's getting up there in age. Uh, the team has struggled the last few seasons. They've not been in the mix for the Big Ten championship in in what three or four years. Um, they've not seemed to brought in the same kind of offensive talent that they used to be bringing in. The the Joe Batchy uh, loss midseason this past year completely decimated their their defense, and then just all the scandals that have surrounded Michigan State with the horrible oversight of the gymnastics program and that mm, doctor guy and um, sexual assault stuff that is that has plagued both the football and, and basketball programs and questions of. You know, coaches reporting things or, or hiding things, etc. And it just felt like a wave that eventually was going to crash over, and um, and and it seemed a lot more plausible that it was going to hit D'Antonio, and he was going to he was going to take the exit than than Tom Izzo. So, like I, I don't remember if we actually talked about it live on a podcast, but I like the timing of this is very surprising. Although he had, he had he got a big bonus payout on January fifteenth by still being the head coach. Um, yeah. But the, um, I, I think the suddenness of it is, is, is much more surprising to me. I feel like usually when a coach like this goes out, it, you know, you get, you get some foreshadowing and you get some, um, some, some, some things in the wind. And, um, this was very sudden and, and it, it, it's a, it's, it's a huge impact to the conference. And it's a really weird time to do it too. Tomorrow before signing day is, yeah. is, is a, is a signing day. Um, you know, obviously you've got the early signings that are done. You've recruited these kids and now they're all excited to come. And oh, look, your coach that, 
you know, you've committed to, you've signed with is, is gone. Anyone who is still on the fence, are they going to, are, have you lost any, or are you able to get any of these last guys that you were trying to get? I don't know where Michigan State was with their recruiting situation, if they were trying to get any any guys coming up tomorrow. But, I mean, if you were, that pretty much just shoots it right out of the window. But, like, it's just the timing is so bizarre. This Now is not the time that that you walk away. The coaching carousel is done. Not, not Should, anymore. Not, not, yeah, exactly. Not anymore. It, it, it doesn't it doesn't seem that surprising to me because I believe that this is about that lawsuit. Now, in terms of were they in the dark about this or did they just not think it was going to be a certain thing? But I mean, like to me, there's a strong cause and effect. I mean, I regardless of what D'Antonio says, that's the way that I see it. Um, I do want to say one thing before before I go on to the next thing I'm going to say, just because I think this is crazy. Um, so just for everyone to realize when Pat Fitzgerald finished his first year coaching Northwestern, Mark D'Antonio was still the coach of Cincinnati. And now Pat Fitzgerald is still coaching. That is just crazy to me. Um, it, you really start to realize how long Fitz has been our coach. Um, that it, his tenure encompasses the entire D'Antonio era was contained within it, which is just amazing. Um, with all that said... And everything, you know, you guys said one of the most interesting things to me relative to this is not so much recruiting, although, I mean, of course, that stuff absolutely matters. And certainly from a longer term perspective, it matters. Um, and, and you could see a point where if things do get bad enough, right? I mean, if suddenly some bomb goes off, I mean, we think of what happened with Ole Miss, you, you suddenly might give guys a, a transfer year, right? With it, where they don't have to sit out a year. And then you find out how many guys. The Big Ten's already talking about that, right? Like that's yeah, that's, right. a, that's that a proposal that's out there, right? Yeah, right. So it's like it's not like you'd have to convince the rest of the conference to go along with that. Um, the really interesting thing to me, though, with all that said, is what it is going to impact, right? Whatever these sanctions are, is who you can get as your next coach, um, and for all the problems. Michigan State has had, you know, off the field, it's so funny, like off the field comparing Michigan State and Northwestern is like night and day. I mean, it's not even a comparison. On the field, though, there's a lot of the same character, right? It's like defense first, football, um, your, whereas, you know, Northwestern's doing it mainly by, you know, producing a great defense out of three-star recruits. Michigan State traditionally is producing a phenomenal defense out of three and four-star recruits. But the overall character is kind of the same. And, I would think, even with the tailing off that Sam talked about, that Michigan State is going to want to try to maintain that same kind of character. And obviously, there are two names right at the top of the list. And in my own mind, I'm kind of thinking the the, the extent to which these uh, sanctions, whatever they are, just how big the bomb is that's about to go off here is kind of going to dictate how like their chances of getting coach a or their chance of getting coach B. So, I mean, there's, there's Michigan state says they're going to be doing a full search. Um, you know, sure, as, sure. as we look at it, you know, the two names that just immediately jump off the page, uh, Luke fickle, Pat Narduzzi, um, obviously Narduzzi's, uh, History with Michigan State, you know, longtime defensive coordinator. Um, you know, Luke Fickle knows the area, knows the region. 
uh, he would be making the same move that D'Antonio did going from Cincinnati to Michigan State. So, uh, you know, those two names immediately jump to the forefront of everyone's lists. I, you know, well, Fickle, Fickle was on a lot of, uh, coaching shortlists this offseason. I think the that's word, the big thing. Yeah. The word around him is that he is being very picky about, like, like, like he has some clear perspective on what he does or doesn't want to do. Um, I think we've talked about the idea of, you know, in his heart of hearts is Ohio State where he ultimately wants to go. Um, I don't, you know, going to Michigan State certainly wouldn't, you know, if Ohio State for some reason came open in two years, if Ryan Day went to the NFL, like, I'm sure Luke would call him up and be like, hey, guys, I'll I'll leave Michigan State for y'all. Um, I I think the bigger question to your point, John, is is the sanctions piece and that he has turned down some other, you know, pretty, pretty good opportunities. The interesting thing is D'Antonio came from that Jim Trestle staff. That's also where Luke Fickle came from. So it's not just that Cincinnati connection but uh, and, and the Ohio State connection, but that they were on the same staff. Well, they weren't on the same staff, but they, they both come from the same connection. tree. Yes, back to the same tree. So it seems like a very obvious one. And then Pat Narduzzi, right, who who was the architect behind a lot of D'Antonio's defensive success at Pitt right now. It's, I, you know, obviously it was a, it would be a big jump up. He spent a lot of time at Michigan State. I don't know where his background is. I, is. Is he a Pitt alum? Attended Youngstown State and Rhode Island and Miami. So no, he didn't. He does. He is not an alumnus of uh, of Pitt. He's from Steel Country, but not Pitt. Um, but it, it's kind of interesting though, because you can see a path, right? Where both of these guys are obviously the perfect fit for the overall football culture of Michigan state. And then you've got Narduzzi who on one hand, he's not exactly lit the world on fire at Pitt, but on the other hand, it's Pitt. Like the list of coaches who like it, that the ACC is Clemson's show right now. It's Clemson's world and everyone else is just living in it. Um, and he has had some success, um, you know, like various times, right? I mean, he was the head coach of the team, if I'm correct, that Northwestern beat in the Pinstripe Bowl. That is um, correct, yeah. Um, where Matt Canada, you know, at the time was his OC. Um, and that team had beaten Clemson that year. So he has had some success. And you would assume, right, that moving up to the next level, Michigan State, access to, to more talent, etc. But mainly... If you bring in Pat Narduzzi, you're going to be able to continue to recruit defense at the same level that Mark D'Antonio is. Um, and and he knows those areas. He knows the guys to recruit. He was doing all that for a long time and having great success doing it. And Yeah, yeah but Fickle's a better coach. Oh, no, 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 no. Fickle is the guy that you want. Absolutely. But to your point, if Fickle is looking right now and he's saying, look— I'm not taking over a scandal-plagued Michigan State program uh-huh. that's about to get hit with sanctions when I could, like, you know, I've got any number of jobs coming down the pipe. He's thinking right now, he's like, look, I'm about to throw up another 11-win season for Cincinnati, and then I'll take whatever the best job is that's available at that point. Um, plus, where, plus, you know, you think about you know, going to the Big Ten East. You've got Ohio State, who's the juggernaut, Michigan, who's always kind of nipping on their heels. Penn State's in pretty good shape right now. Like the top of that division is is pretty stacked, so you're coming in with you know kind of a ceiling of of second in in the East. But again, it's like if you're Nar, that's what I mean. If you're Narduzzi, it's still an attractive move. Sure, it's unquestionably sure. A, it's unquestionably a move up to the head job at a place you know really well. That's a culture you get, a place you know how to recruit. That again, I think 
that's a situation where I'm like, both sides should feel like it's lucky that they have that option at this point, um, which is why that's why it makes sense. But obviously, move number one is just drop the money bin on Luke Fickle and see if see if he takes the job. Absolutely. Yeah. But if not, regardless of the search, it's hard for me to think it's going to go past those two guys. Interesting sliding doors moment. When D'Antonio was hired from Cincinnati to Michigan State, Narduzzi was uh, one of the primary candidates for the head coaching position at Cincinnati. Um, but when they gave it to Brian Kelly, he decided to follow D'Antonio to Michigan State. This is was, Nardu- was Narduzzi on that Cincinnati staff? With- yeah, he was He was the D.C. Um, and and he had told Cincinnati, like, look, if, if you offer – like. I'll stay if you offer me the head coach position, but if not, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with uh, with D'Antonio. Um, and isn't that isn't that interesting? I, I'm I'm pretty confident Brian Kelly did a better job at Cincinnati than Narduzzi would have. No shade to Narduzzi, frankly. It's just amazing how small this world is. It's just like Cincinnati, Ohio State, Michigan State. It's just that's where this group, that's where the coach. It's just so hard. They can, however large a net they can say they're gonna cast, like. You can see where this is all headed. It's just a question of which which one of these guys they get, and then whatever the fallout from the sanctions are. Do they even make a call to see if uh, Nick Saban wants to bookend his career? <laughs> <laughs> why, why why not leave a message? Hey Nick, yeah, sure. remember the good times? You could win a national championship at a third school. Um, I you know the, the other the other interesting thing is so and and this is very relevant for us because we open the season at Michigan State next year. Yeah. And there was um, the the year prior to was it the year prior to D'Antonio getting there. I can't remember what happened. There was wasn't there a um, oh I'm thinking when John L. Smith was like an interim coach at Arkansas. Anyways, there's there's a there's a scenario here where they don't get Fickle nor Narduzzi, and then there's a huge question of what they do. And frankly, they might do this anyway if there are questions about sanctions and they don't want to like burn too many bridges, et cetera. They might go the the Matt Luke route uh, that that Ole Miss took and just promote somebody from within. And let's remember, this is a coaching staff who literally had all of their jobs changed at the beginning of this season because of how poorly they were doing and still did poorly. Um, God, I would love for one of those guys to become interim head coach. Going well, into actually, next they, they they have named an interim head coach for right now, Mike Tressel. Wow, can, can it can it stick till September though? That's like, it would be amazing. It would be absolutely amazing if um if that were the case. And because because right now, like that, like the, the huge concern obviously is that if you go out and you hire somebody now. And they are only able to bring some of their assistants along. Like there ain't no assistant coaches out there to hire right now. You are, you are past the prime of the coaching carousel. It, it's going to get going a little bit here again, right? Because there's probably going to be a domino effect from whatever Michigan State does. But um, they are they are between a bit of a rock and a hard place. And if they do go that interim route, I, I think that bodes very well for uh, for other Big Ten foes next year. Uh, just as a point of information, Mike Tressel is Jim Tressel's nephew. As if this whole thing again, Ohio State, Cincinnati, <laughs> Michigan State. I mean, it's like why do these why do these fan bases even root against each other? I'm just you're all just sharing the same group of guys. That's funny. Oh well, finally tonight, um, I guess they, there was a, a football game on Sunday. Mike Kafka gets a ring. Mike Kafka yeah. gets a ring. 
I, it, it really pains me to be excited for Kansas City as a Broncos fan, but, um, you know, it, at the end of the day, Kafka gets a ring. Uh, the Chiefs played great. Uh, San Francisco absolutely blew the game as what, I mean, it was equally, you know, Pat Mahomes doing what he does and San Francisco getting way too conservative. Um, and felt familiar. Yeah, it really did. But, so uh, I have, I have yeah, two got- main, two main things that I just want to mention. Um, the first, the first is that the, the, the immediate aftermath of this for like 24 hours, all I heard was like, man, Pat Mahomes really stunk for three quarters and then he was awesome. I think people that say that are, are really forgetting what he did in the first quarter and how good he was in the first quarter against, against that defense, um, slate unseen. I, I just, I, that dude is unbelievable, um, and and I, the biggest takeaway I think from the Super Bowl is he has very very clearly stamped his his place atop of the football pyramid um, right now as as the best player at, at the toughest position. Um, the second thing is that Kyle Shan Kyle Shanahan was was channeling Pat Fitzgerald in this game. <laughs> Um, and, and I'm not talking about down the stretch, uh, in terms of run versus pass or anything like that. I'm talking about two moments earlier in the game, not calling a timeout before half. Yeah. Um, they could have had, the game was tied. They could have had roughly what, like a minute, 30 minute and a half. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of people saying, oh, well, you know, he, he, if they pinned him deep and then they had to punt it back to the chiefs, then you're giving Mahomes a chance to score and go up. Dude, you were averaging seven yards per carry on the ground at that time, and your offense was doing whatever it wanted. So that was—I mean—that was just a a a a mistake of overconfidence, in my opinion. And then there was there was a fourth and two where they settled for a field goal, and it just it felt very um, felt very pre-analytics Fitzgerald, but also a little <laughs> little too much. Now that too close to home for me. Now that you mentioned that, because Bill Simmons was complaining to cousin Sal over and over again in his Monday pause pod, where the hell was the play action? Where the hell was the play action? Yes. yes. So, <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I probably did have some little scar that was twitched off of that. Um, but and didn't, and didn't the, didn't the end of that game for the 49ers, like their last drive just feel extremely Northwestern football-y? Just like a little too much uh, on that hail or not hail mary, but the long what would have been a, a forty-seven yard touchdown pass to Emmanuel Sanders, just uh, overthrown, and then a the sack o- on fourth down. The the sack on four, the sack interception on fourth down, and then the other interception on like that 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 was the part that just felt like protection breaking down and the quarterback just getting overwhelmed and uh. yeah. I, pivoting to to a happy place back where we kind of started on this, I will say again, it, it's awesome for Kafka, who will be now that the Andy Reid coaching tree, as if it needed any more luster, has even more luster now. Um, it's so funny. It's like I guess because the Rooney Rule is a joke. I mean, like, why is Eric Bieniemy still the offensive coordinator of the Kansas City Chiefs? Okay, real real quick on Eric Bieniemy, you guys saw the. The anecdote that he was talking about where, uh, the fourth down, uh, play that they ran early in the game. Yeah, he's pulling plays pulling from, play like, from the, the 40s. 1948 Rose Bowl. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, if, if you want to say, like, this is all Pat Mahomes, look, it's a lot, it's mostly Pat Mahomes. I mean, he's incredible, but give me a break. Like, there is awesome coaching going on there. 
Um, and the Andy Reid coaching tree is known to be amazing. And it's just like, I mean, this call could all be moved. Eric Bieniemy may be a head coach at the start of next season and should be. Um, but if he is, everyone's going to move up. The, Mike Kafka, Pat Mahomes quarterback's coach, is going to be moving up the ladder, whether that's in the Chiefs organization or somewhere else. But, I mean, Pat Mahomes quarterback coach means you get a better job the way that this has all worked out. Do you and, think – go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, do Do you think Do you think Mike and Pat have sat down and watched the tape from the two thousand nine uh, Outback Bowl, or was Or was that two thousand eight? I never remember. Like the years always screw me up when it's on January first. But when the Cats went and played Auburn in the Outback Bowl the year before Auburn won the national championship, and Cats just went went ham on five hundred and forty yards and however many TDs and just looked amazing. I think uh, they did. I think they did it in the off season. They sat down and watched it while Fitz plied him with alcohol with this long game of like, so want to come back and be good times in Northwestern? <laughs> How about oh, I didn't that mean Pat Fitzgerald. Job? I, I didn't mean Pat Fitzgerald. I meant Pat Mahomes. Oh, I see what you're saying. <laughs> Wrong, Pat. You, that's you see where my head's at here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> see, see, Pat. See what I did there. Now you, you're <laughs> you're infinitely more mobile than I. So. Oh, I. I thought you were going to say, well, I, I thought you were going to say, uh, what, the Minnesota game? To be like, now, Pat, if you want to see how to put up 300 rushing yards in a game. There you let go. Me pop, let me pop in the tape for you right here. <laughs> that was the game plan against Tennessee. <laughs> yeah. You don't need to throw. Three, 300 yards on the ground. Yeah, no. <laughs> but, again, it's like we joke, but for real, I mean, Mike Kafka is – this guy is going to be one of the young stars. Like within a decade, he'll minimum be an offensive coordinator. And if within a decade, playing, within, within three, two three, years, three years, one or two years, and it, he's certainly one of those guys where it's like the you know, the, and beyond that, we'll see. Because I mean, I think the sky's the limit. Like this, suddenly Mike Kafka is a guy who may end up right at the very top of the NFL. Um, we're going to find out, but he's he's on his way. So yeah, I. I if I guess I would have had to pick, I would have picked 49ers. Sam obviously had a strong rooting interest in this one, but all things being equal, Mike Kafka getting a ring is pretty awesome. I love I love the Chiefs. Tyron Matthew, Matthew, um, Kafka, Mahomes, Andy Reid. I know they've got some some um, un, unpleasant uh, players that play for them as well that maybe shouldn't be playing. Um, but I was uh, yeah I was in Chiefs camp on this one. Sorry, Sammy. Eh, you know. Um, so with with the NFL season done, I think we all are now Seattle Dragons fans, right? That's yeah. right. When, XFL starting game? up this uh, Saturday. All right. As the Dragons go to, I th- I don't know if they go to or host DC, but uh, you got the three Wildcats on D for the Dragons, and then Hunter Nicewander punting for the DC Defenders. That's right, guys. It's XFL season. We'll see. If 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 the Northwestern guys are playing out and, and Seattle's doing well, that will probably keep me at least mildly interested. But honestly, sorry, boys. Like, you got to fight with Northwestern women's hoops right now. It's an uphill battle. No oh, doubt. For sure. For sure. Well, uh, let's go ahead and leave it there for tonight. Uh, head to our website, westlawpirates.com, where you can leave comments and questions. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at westlawpirates. And you can always email the show, westlotpirates at gmail.com. Tune in next time as we give our visceral and statistical views on Northwestern athletics. And look for us in the west side of Ryan Field flying the red pirate flag because we give no quarter, especially the fourth. For John Lacombe and Eric Scasbo, I'm Sam Walter. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.